theyeshiva.net. In honor of the weather, we began a mimer of the Balatanya on the Pasuk Hanoisen, Shelag Katzomer, Kvor Ka'efe Yefazer, Mashlich, Karchay Chifitim, Lifnei Karosoy, Miyamoy, Yishlach Dvarev, Yamsey, Mashavrucha, Yislamayim, said every single morning in the Pesukah de Zimra from Tehillim, one of the last chapters of Tehillim, Kufmem Zayin, in which David HaMelech, the poet of Tehillim, and every Jew in Pesukah de Zimra, describes many of the aspects of nature, which is one of the functions of Pesukah de Zimra, in the various halalukas that we say. And one of them is the phenomenon, the extraordinary phenomenon of snow, of sleet, of hail, of ice, the cold temperature, and then the melting of it into water. And he begins off, he begins with the words, he gives snow like tzemer, which is fleece, which is like white wool, tzemer. Shelig is compared to tzemer, etc. We have a principle that we discussed many times, and this is a fundamental idea, in many of the Svarim of Machshava, of Pnimi Yisatayra, Sifri Kabbalah, Sifri Nister in general, that every physical phenomena in nature, whatever it may be, is the outer layer of a spiritual phenomenon. Just as we understand that the physical phenomenon itself has so many layers to it, you could look at it from the outside, from a superficial perspective, and you could dig deeper and see more of what we would call the pnimius of what is going on inside. Just like when somebody comes into a room crying and you see the tears streaming down their face. So a mature person understands that it's not just liquid water that is flowing down their cheeks. And that's the entire... uh, entire significance of the story and you'll be able to, you'll ask a physician or biologist exactly how is water formed in the eyes and how does it come out of the eyes that it's an interesting question biologically why are tears coming from the eyes, what is it in the body that produces those tears but it's like (laughs) somebody will say, why are you crying the person will say, well I'm experiencing, uh, I'm experiencing pain. No, who's talking about pain? I want to understand why you're crying. What happens in the eyes that's making you cry? So in, in, a, in a class on biology, there's room for that. But you miss the boat. You miss the boat because you're completely divorcing the physical phenomenon of tears of the internal experience of emotion. So of course there are tears and one has to understand the physical properties of tears if they're interested in understanding it. And it's, it's quite a fascinating subject, even though that's not our subject today. <laughs> but you missed the boat. It's probably related to the wisdom. Yeah, of the person, exactly. On the other hand, you see a person smiling and radiant and, and full of smiles and joy and the quelling from ear to ear like this young man. Right? So, uh, and you'll ask the person, 
why are you smiling? And he'll say, you know, this and this occurred, or I experienced this, this joy or this pleasure with this great news. And nah, who's talking about that? I just want to understand what happens to the muscles. <laughs> so when I'm turning, I'm turning emotions into mechanics. Now it's true, there's a mechanism. There are the, 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 there are the physical mechanics. And they should not be ignored. But they represent, they're representing something. They're representing a more internal experience. And so you can go deeper and deeper. Because even the emotion itself, the pain, the pain sometimes that the person feels is yet a layer of deeper pain, and so on and so forth. So the deeper one goes, one excavates the outer shell, the outer husk, and sees not the internal energy as something replacing the outer energy, but just to be able to see the full picture, to be able to see the mechanism as a manifestation of an internal experience. This is a very important idea in Kabbalah, in Chesidus, in Machshava of Yiddishkeit, in Teres Anister, when it comes to all phenomena in our world, whether it's science or physics, nature, biology, astronomy, cosmology, every nekuda, every phenomenon in the physical world is important, and its, its mechanisms are magnificent and extraordinary. As David HaMelech says, and we say also every morning, Marabu, Masach HaShem, or in another place, Magadlu Masach HaShem. Ma'od amku machshavay secha. Ishbar lo yeiduch as we say on Shabbos. The depth is mind-staggering, and even beyond mind-staggering. Those levels where the mind still even, hasn't even reached every day, we discover more and more. But then there is appreciating the fuller picture. And the fuller picture is the ability to be able to see the physical phenomenon as an expression of internal mechanisms, which are expressions yet of deeper mechanisms, which are expressions yet of deeper mechanisms, on a physical level, and then you can graduate and ascend to the deeper spiritual energy that is vibrating and is at the core of all the physical mechanics. It doesn't replace it. It just gives you, gives you the full picture. And just as we understand Zeus HaTorah Adam in a person's life, that as long as I'm only in touch with the most external level, I'm really not in touch with myself. If a person is having a very intense reaction to something, and we often have an intense reaction, and I don't have the courage to stop and take a deep breath and ask, why? I want to understand the why. What just happened? There's very little room for growth. There's very little room for awareness. As we always say from the Yerushalmim, Ein das, I can't make choices. I become like a, 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 a mechanic. I become like a, a victim to it. It's just like this happens automatically. The sign of maturity, the sign of growth, the sign of taking responsibility for your life and really growing in your life is the ability to be able to stop and reflect. To be able to really reflect and ask the question. What just happened? Why did it happen? To be able to observe not only the most external layer, but also the deeper layer. And the deeper one goes, the more sweetness, the more healing, the more tikkun, the more integration can happen. So your child tells you something, or your spouse tells you something, or a friend, or a neighbor, or a shachin, or an employer, an employee, it's irrelevant whom. 
I mean, it's relevant, but uh, the muscle could be used in any situation for any person. And you find yourself mentally in a very, very intense place. You're very frustrated. You're very angry. You're very sad. You're furious. Whatever it is, you could just say, this is, this is it. This is not it. If this is it, then there's no room. This is checkmate. So this is who I am. Every time I'm going to see, every time you're going to ask me this question, I'm going to freak out. It often, often happens in marriages. Every time he asks her something or she asks him something, there's a meltdown. So they both learn basically to survive. <laughs> so if you want to survive, she learns not to say something, he learns not to say something. But what happens? Everybody remains stuck. There's no growth. The great gift of a deeper life or a more aware life, a more ruchnizdika life, a life of avoida is avoided, like the Alter Rebbe always says from the Lashon, ma'abed, in, in Hilcha Shabbos, ibud oiris. Ibud oiris means tanning. You take raw hide, take raw skin, and you have to work it out. Ibud. And it's not an easy job. It's called a bursike in Gemara, which was not considered a very dignified job because of the odors that it produces. That's what all avoida is. Avoida is, I have to get to that raw skin which is attached to flesh and hair and it's gooey and it could smell and, and you got to put in salt and trample on it and chemicals and develop it. The Gemara describes Shuka de Bursiki, what it smelled like in the areas where they would do the tanning. Yeah. Shuka de Bursiki, a market, a, an area where they would do Bursikis, where they did tanning. All Avoida, Avoida Sashem is named for that. The word of people don't know, Avoida, we say service, to serve, Evet. It's, it's rooted in the word ma'abed, ibud oiris. That's what avoid is. Avoid is have to be able to take the raw oiris and, and, and develop it. That takes work. So I'm having a raw emotion. It's fine. Now, be, now do, do a little avoid with it. Be ma'abed it. Look at the pnimius of it. You're reacting because of a reason. There's something inside. It's not just an external thing that happened. There's something behind it. Can you look for the neshama? Could you look for the chiyos? What is the fuel? What is the oxygen that is behind that? In education, it's so important, right? A person could look at a child who's behaving in a very, very rebellious way, and all I could say is, you're a rebel, you're a mechutzef, you're a bad kid. Anybody ever heard that definition? And, yeah, I mean, yeah, the guys, the kids climbing walls, and, 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 do the, and that's the more benign things they do in a relaxed moment. And then there's more aggressive and creative things. It's true, and you have to deal with it. But sometimes you're missing the boat. There's a there's an internal energy going on. There's something fueling it. There's a there's a chiyus here. There's an ashama. Can you identify it? Can you identify it, and 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 go deeper into it? In the world of recovery. There's a, there's a very deep expression. It's very, very deep. Addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the solution. Now you have to figure out what the problem is. We look at somebody who's addicted. He's addicted to alcohol, he's addicted to addicted to gambling, addicted to a lot of different types of uh, substances or people or things or websites that are completely destructive, self-destructive. That's the problem. That's not the problem. That's the solution. 
he is running to these substances or she's running as a solution for something. It's a foolish solution. It's a dysfunctional solution. It's a destructive solution. It's a solution that's not going to last. But in their mind, in their pain, this is the solution. At least temporary, at least for an hour, for a day, for six hours. Tomorrow I'm going to look for another solution. I'm going to have to uh, up it a notch. But if I don't understand that, I'll be talking about the wrong thing. How could you be doing this? Why are you doing such stupid things? That's not the problem. That's the solution. The person is trying to run from something. Can you address that? It's true individually. It's also true as a community. It's true. When uh, a community wants to address a certain percentage of its youngsters who are falling into all types of destructive behavior, from depression to addictions to overdoses, etc. It's so critical to understand that overdose is not the problem. Overdose is the solution. It's the horrible solution. It's the tragic solution. It's the horrific solution. That's not your problem. My question has to be much deeper. What are these people responding to? What are they picking up? What are the toxins that's going in, the, so to speak, toxins going into their brains. What is the toxicity they're eating or they're drinking or they're absorbing at some point, intentionally or unintentionally, willingly or unwillingly, as the fault of somebody or not the fault of somebody? But what is it that is it's driving it? All growth begins with this process. Be able to see the inner layer behind it. And therefore, it's true on every level. It's also true when it comes to all of nature. And that's the key here. The key is, I could, stu- I could look at snow. I could look at ice. I could study the mechanics of it. And it's, it's, it's amazing <laughs> to understand the chemistry, to understand the science, to understand the weather, to understand the mechanisms. There's a whole field called meteorology, meteorologists, who are the great experts on weather. And there are, of course, chemists and scientists and physicists. And all of it addresses a certain layer of what we call natural phenomena. And how it connects with other natural phenomena and how it develops and the causes and the causes themselves. You can go deeper and yet deeper and yet deeper. What are the causes? And still touching all scratching the surface, meaning scratching the physical layer. And this would be called, in the Lashon of the Balatanya, the Lashon of Nister Bechlal, the layers of Olam HaAsiyah. You're looking at the layers of Olam HaAsiyah. The world of action. The world of action means the outer physical world. And a person could spend their whole life on it. <laughs> Don't worry, you could spend many life lifetimes to understand the chemistry of, of, of water, the chemistry of ice, the chemistry of snow. People have done it. You could just spend your life taking pictures of snowflakes, putting them under a microscope and taking pictures of snowflakes, and it's pretty exciting and interesting. Just giving you different career options. We do that also in the Shia. It's a very pure world. It's an innocent world. There's no, maybe there's politics, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you could sit. There was the, person, the person who started this in the 1880s was a man in Vermont, and he was an interesting fellow. He lived with his mother, and he was uh, what we would call an Alter de Bacher. 
and uh, he found himself a microscope with a camera. He started to take pictures of snowflakes. Nobody knew what snowflakes are. They thought it's snowflakes. You make a snowman. You play. Nobody knew the 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 brilliance, the the, the shapes, the beauty, the magnificent beauty of, of of each snowflake, and each one is different than the other, and its shapes and so forth. So that's 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 it's 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 very powerful. It's very beautiful, and it all represents. The Chachem of the Rebbeinu Shalalem. Everything is there. But then there's also the deeper layer. The deeper layer is to understand what we would call the Dvar Hashem. The Dvar Hashem, Bidvar Hashem Shamayim Naso, to be able to understand the spiritual weather forecast. What's the spiritual weather forecast? Spiritual weather forecast means when you turn on the radio in the car, yeah, it's going to be when Mashiach comes. Yeah, you're not going to hear, you're going to hear, okay, the winds are coming at 20, 20, 20 miles per hour, and there's going to be this traffic on the George Washington, going to be a 60-minute backup, don't take the Lincoln, don't take the Holland, and it's all important, and the snow is gathering up, and it's going to be 13 inches, so if you have to make a commute, try to cancel it, all MS Vinachin Hadavar, that comes also, a broadcast, a spiritual broadcast. Spiritual broadcast means, could somebody identify what are the spiritual forces that are being communicated in the world that the weather is only reflecting? In Kabbalah, there's a famous term that you've heard called Yechudim. Yechudim, unifications. One of the ideas of Yechudim is this concept. The ability to be able to see the Yichud of things, the unity of things. In other words, to be able to see the Yichud of the Gashmi and the Ruchni, of the Pnimi and the Chitzen, of the Guf and the Nefesh. To be able to unify things, to be able to see the full picture, the full context, not only from a physical level, but from a spiritual level. Now one could be cynical and hear this and say it's all very nice psychological babble, but in reality, what does it have to do with snow and ice? These are all natural phenomena. And it's exactly like saying, yeah, you're crying. Don't talk to me about pain. There's no pain. There's just water coming down on your cheeks. And I can't argue with that. I can't prove in the laboratory that you're crying because of pain. I, I just can't. What am I supposed to do? I can't prove it. And a person could live that way. It's fine. You, I mean, we all do. You could strip. You could strip the chitzainis from the panimis. It's just a much smaller life. It's a narrower life. It's called a narrow life. It's it's a more impoverished life. One's talking with somebody about... Uh, about Hashem, about God. He says he doesn't believe. Huh? Global warming. It's everything is explained. <laughs> right. I said, you know, at some point, you can argue a hair a hen, but at some point, you know, you could live, you could live a life without humor, without having a sense of humor. There are people you may know in your life, you, you don't want to tell them a joke. It's just not going to work. It's going to backfire. Yeah. No, but nobody in this Shia Baruch Hashem, because you wouldn't be able to tolerate me after a while. <coughs> Not backfiring, just don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sometimes not getting it uh, depends who, right? If you're trying to impress your boss and he doesn't have a sense of humor, after a while it can backfire. But in any case, so uh, it, it, a person has to live their life with humor. You don't have you don't have humor. You could live your life without humor. You could live your life without music. <laughs> person could live their life without music. Person could live their life without without material, without books, without literature, without information. A person can live their life without love. It doesn't say anywhere. Biology doesn't dictate that you have to live your life with love. There are people 
who are completely isolated, hermits, and even if they're physically not isolated, they're emotionally isolated, and they could live their lives without love. You could. You can all these two things. Can I prove otherwise? Can I demand otherwise? I don't think I could. But everybody understands it's a smaller life. <laughs> it's just a narrower life. Life shrinks to smaller dimensions. A person could live their life without meaning, without purpose, without even thinking that there should be meaning. Or in other words, without any idea of, of, of God or a presence or, or a truth at the core of the universe. I could. A person could. Just life is reduced. It's, it's reduced to much smaller dimensions. And the same is true with this whole conversation. I could look only at external layers and say, this is it. There's nothing else to snow but the formations of ice crystals and another billion, another uh, hundreds or thousands of good coincidences that come together in terms of temperature, in terms of climate, in terms of the nature of vapor, in terms of clouds, in terms of ice crystals, in terms of grains of sand that attach themselves to the ice crystals. A bunch, a bunch of components that come together in order to do it. Yes, and that's, that's an amazing explanation. What this is postulated on is that there's always the pnimius behind the chitzenius. And that goes deeper and deeper. And when one looks at the world that way, just as when they look at themselves, when they look at other people, they see not just the body of it, but also the soul of it, which gives the body so much more depth and significance. That's the yesoid upon which the whole explanation is based when we talk about analyzing or dissecting or understanding physical phenomenon in light of pnimius hatayra, which is what the word pnimius means. Pnimius means the pnim, what is inside, where chitzainius means that which is chutz, which is on the outside. The more concrete level, that's called oilam hasiya, and then the oilam hapnimi is the pnimius, the engine, the soul, the chius, the energy that is inside of it, vivifying it, giving it life, giving it substance. Based on this introduction, we started to explain that Shelig and Kerach, both snow and ice, represent and are a result of the fact that water is transformed from a fluid form into a more solid form. Obviously, when ice crystals are formed and we experience them as snowflakes, as they descend from the clouds as snowflakes, they can easily melt back into water, as he says. Sometimes on the ground, they right away melt into water, or you put them in a vessel, they melt back into water. The, 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 the element of, uh, of contraction, the water being congealed and contracted and condensed, exists both in snowflakes and ice. But he says, but ice often is extremely solid, and the, the, the temperature freezes the water, becomes a solid block of ice, which can also melt after a while, but you can't compare it to the thin and subtle nature of snowflakes, each snowflake independently especially. What does this represent from a spiritual perspective? It's the concept that mayim, all mayim is a metaphor for chachma for wisdom, for enlightenment, information, inspiration. Just as water nourishes the person, it 
it vivifies the person, it refreshes the person, it invigorates a person, and it's essential to life. So water, in Yiddishkeit, is always a metaphor for chachma, for wisdom. Right? There's an expression by us, yam ha the sea of wisdom, or yam ha-talmud, the ocean of Gemara. Yam, why is it called yam ha-talmud? It's mayim shein lem soif. First of all, it's endless. Mayim shein lem soif. It's an ocean where you don't see the end. Arucha merits mida, urechava mini yam. But also the concept of Mayim, Ein Mayim El is referred to in Tanakh and in Gemara and in Medrash very often as a metaphor for Chachma, for wisdom. Mayim. There's Mayim El there's Mayim Tachtoinim. All metaphors for Chachma. When the water becomes condensed, when the water becomes ice, Kerach, so we're going to see there's something called Kerach and something called Shalik Snow. What's the concept? The concept is that there is a Tzimtzum. What do we mean that there is a Tzimtzum? Tzimtzum literally means condensing, restriction, contraction. It's Mitzamtzum means contracts, which is what happens. The water, instead of being expansive in a state of espashtus, in a state of a liquid form flowing everywhere, it condenses, it comes together, becomes compact, and becomes a solid. And scientifically, the molecules are not flying everywhere and bumping into each other, which is what water is, not on the surface, on a deeper level. But it now, so to speak, settles down. It's more fixed, condensed. It's a solid block of, of, of ice or snow, which is, again, also, also condensed. But you can't compare it to the density, and as he puts it, the thickness of ice, which basically represents, all of it represents a type of tzimtzum. And as he puts it, whenever there is chachma being communicated, like we also learned at length in the Maimra of Yadaita, Moskva, that we learned before this, so a few weeks ago, before the previous Maimra, Yadaita, Moskva, Tafresh, Nun Zion, whenever there is transmission, you want to transmit the water, when you want a flow of water from one state to another state, for it to be effective and successful, there has to be the concept of condensing the water, congealing the water, compacting the water, contracting the water, turning it into shalak. Why is it? It's true both mitzad mashpia and mitzad mekabel. Mitzad mashpia is obvious, he doesn't even elaborate on it. Here he elaborates mitzad mekabel. Mitzad mashpia, the giver, we understand. Whenever you want to give information that is extremely intense, you have to contract it and you know give the compact version. Or the Moshe Reb Shloyma said, you have so much information you want to send over to somebody else's computer. You can't send it. You have to send a zip file. What's a zip file? You have to encrypt the information, condense it, send it as a compact it's on a, now you're sending something much more mitzumtzum, and then the person, the recipient, is going to have to uh, unzip it. Unravel. Unravel it, right. Yeah. Isn't it opposite? The ice is uh, it's more expensive. Physically. You're saying water, when it gets colder, becomes, becomes physically, yeah. Huh? It becomes physically, you're saying it expands, Right. Yeah, but by mean expanding, not that it becomes bigger, but it remains as a solid, not as a liquid which flows. As the Gemara says, 
it just flows everywhere because it's a liquid. It becomes congealed into one one solid piece. Even though with water, uh, unlike other substances, the colder it gets, it expands actually, unlike other things which contract. This is unique to water, yeah. And there's a reason for it also, Al Piruchnes. Transport the water. Uh, you can just transport with block, blocks of ice. But uh, to transport the, wo- the water, you need to have a container to. So it's either you have a container to contain that water or you just freeze it. That you can do it. Opposite of zip file. Zip file it makes it smaller. So the ice is bigger. So okay. But it's for trans for transport is the problem. Okay, so ain't a marshal daimelin emshal. So let's use the marshal also you said. <laughs> Yeah, at the other end of the spectrum, it's very hot steam. It's also a phenomenon of water. Yeah, Vada. They're you know, talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hot steam. What was the second? You gave a second, Marshall. No, you want to export. <laughs> you want to export something, and you freeze it. <laughs> you freeze it, and that's what you're saying. You want to transfer it. You freeze it into ice, and you export it. So, mitzad rav, mitzad teacher, what does it represent? In order to be able to communicate, in order to be able to have this flow be transported from one domain into another domain, the water gets frozen, it turns into ice crystals and snow or ice blocks. And what do they represent? They always represent this concept of compacting and congealing the wisdom in the sense that it should be condensed, direct, sharp, focused, harnessed for the kalim, for the vessels of the recipient. What's required is also a tzimtzum on the level of the student, a completely different type of tzimtzum, and that is that he or she must be completely open and present. What he calls your bitlbats musay, the person has to be able to set aside all side issues and all expectations, and all of their own imagination, and their own attitudes, and perspectives, and feelings, and opinions, because then they will never really be able to open themselves up to something new. It will only be filtered through their old consciousness. Why is it that we so rarely hear new things in life? Because when we hear something, even if it's new, what we're thinking about is how we understand it, or how we relate to it, if we agree with it, or we don't agree with it. In other words, I come to it fully intact, without a tzimtzum. A real Talmud, a real student, when he or she listens, they can't exist at the moment, so to speak. I'm completely open. I'm completely like an empty keli. The I cannot be present in the real process of, of, of receiving. At a later point, I'll reassert myself and do what's called critical thinking, and analyze, and dissect, and internalize, and then I can even teach it to others. But at this stage, I'm completely an open space, open to receive. Completely open to receive. That's what real Kabbalah is. That's what a real student is. And the way the Chazal put it, Aidi, the Torah, Lemivla Loi Palat. When I'm in a state of absorbing, I can't emit. I can't speak. I can't communicate. I can't be a Makabal, and a mashpia simultaneously. If I'm a mekabel, I'm not a mashpia. If I'm a mashpia, I'm not a mekabel. A mashpia means I'm transmitting 
I'm mentoring, I'm giving. The makab is I'm receiving. In order to be able to receive, I'm completely in a state of absorption. I'm not in a state of self-assertion that's necessary in order to become the giver. So this is where the Talmud, so to speak, must turn into ice. What do we mean turn into ice? Can't be in a state of of hispashtus, of self-expansion, but on the contrary, self-condensing, self-contraction, where the self almost is like reduced to an akuda, to an akuda, and the I is not expanded and present in any real way, in any deep way. That's the tzimtzum that's necessary from the Talmud. That he, so to speak, becomes like, uh, becomes condensed spiritually. You want to know the difference of shalag and kerach? So that will soon see the difference. But the general idea is that there has to be an element of tzimtzum. What is what is tzimtzum in the? What's the muscle for that physically? The muscle is we'll call it the lack of hispashtus. Mayim is in a state that's flowing everywhere. What does that represent? That the person is in a state of of expansiveness. To a person really, really to be a makabal, they like become glued to the concept, glued to the new information. There's no sense of I that is present, which allows me to really absorb something that is deeper than me, that transcends me. I did the tarid lemivla loipalat. That's not real lectures. Now you have to be sitting by a real Rebbe for this. Because if I'm sitting by somebody, I don't trust what he's saying. Right? Why would I even do this? It's like, no, no way. I'm, sh- I'm going to be critical on every single word. But that's a whole different mode. That's a whole different mode. We're talking here, as I said yesterday, you're dealing with a real Talmud and a real Rebbe. Complete self-negation, complete bitl you need, if you really want to absorb it. If I'm busy thinking about where I am in the picture, if I'm focused on my experience of it, I will not really absorb the material. I'll absorb very little of it. To really, really absorb that material, it's almost like I have to disappear. Now, I can't disappear. If I disappear, there's nobody left. But emotionally, mentally, yeah, I have to become mamish like a nakuda, like 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 a flake of snow, <laughs> like like mamish a nakuda, a fly on the wall, yeah, yeah. My entire intellectual ego and emotional ego gotta go. So who am I now? I'm actually nothing. I'm just open. I'm empty space. In empty space, something could come in. Like the Gemara has an expression, clay mole ain't a machzik, clay reikon machzik. If you have a keli that's full, you can't put anything in. If you have a keli that's empty, you could put something in. There was once they sell you an anecdote, somebody came to a teacher, a great teacher, a great master. And uh, he sat down and he said, they say that you have the truth, I want to learn from you. And he's sitting and he says, you know, I'm a brilliant man and I'm ready to hear and I, if you say good things, I'm going to become your student. So he says, sure, but can I offer you a cup of tea? He says, pleasure. So he says, here is a cup. He takes a cup and the man, the master takes a chinik, a kettle off the fire. It's hot, hot water. And this person is holding the mug and he starts pouring the hot water and he gets to the top and he doesn't stop pouring. <laughs> and he continues and continues and continues. And the water is now 
overflowing and it's hot. It's going on his pants and his shirt on his hand and all over the place. He's saying, what are you doing? Stop, 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 stop. He says, why should I stop? He says, this mug is filled. There's no place for more water. He says, exactly, and that's why you, you don't belong here. Your mug is filled already. There's no place for more water. <laughs> you could go find yourself another teacher. When somebody has that attitude, or the opposite attitude, which is similar, cynicism. Cynicism means there's nothing to fill Bechlal. It's like you just give up on everything. Both of those attitudes, the person can't get anything. In the first attitude, I'm filled. What are you going to add? So all I can do is sit and analyze you <laughs> and dissect you. So basically, I'm your teacher. You're not my teacher. <laughs> right? I, be- I become the one who defines you. That's one. Or the other one is, well, I'm not, uh, I don't even believe that I have a mug. <laughs> That's the opposite. That's more common today. There's nothing to fill. What are you going to fill? But both concepts is the person is not really being ready to, to, be, to, be, to be really macabre. How do you get yourself ready? Spend more time here. <laughs> I mean, you can do the same thing with the sheer here. Fill yourself up. Not really hear anything. All that chatter is going on. There's a lot of chatter, right? A lot of chatter in our brain. And sometimes we what you said reminded me when I heard Chalashudas last Shabbos. And I'm thinking to my, I mean, I try to be polite. I'm thinking to myself, it may reminded you what you heard Chalashudas last Shabbos, but it had nothing to do with what you heard in Chalashudas last Shabbos. Absolutely nothing to do. But a person has, I have my filing cabinets. They're filled already. Whatever I hear gets to go into one of the files. Oh, it's a new gematria, it's a new word. Okay, that goes into that file, you know. Whatever it is, avart, it goes into files, but the files are there already. I'm not, I'm not making, there's no new files on my computer. These are the files, you put something, it goes in. Even information giving now also goes to the Yeah, you put it in, and sometimes you like it, you embrace it, sometimes it's not for my files, I heard this already. Storage is filled. My cup is full. If somehow your water is the same thing that I have already, God, I'll take it. If not, go somewhere else. So the truth is, much information, it's a good idea to approach it that way. <laughs> a lot of information, which may be you know, not very consequential and not very significant or not very real or not very deep. There's a reason we do this. This is where critical thinking comes in. Children, for example, don't always have the ability to do this. They're like wet sponges. And they absorb everything, which many of us have to deal with till today. Because when you were four years old, you didn't have the mechanism to say, what this guy speaks is nonsense. <laughs> you didn't have that mechanism. So today, everybody is nonsense. Because when you are four, you wanted somebody to tell you what this guy says is nonsense. But you didn't have that person. So what happens now? Whatever anybody says has to be nonsense because you have to protect yourself. You get what I'm saying? There's a reason that we often do this. I don't want to get hurt again. So now I'm 30 years old or 40 years old or 50 years old. Whatever anybody says is going to be nonsense. 
I was once discussing with somebody something. It was a public uh, forum. There was some de- some debate going on. So uh, I told him how far it I once heard. Uh, they say a story that the, all the fools of the world came together. And uh, they had an emergency summit, a meeting. What happened? They said, it used to be that if you were a fool, you can hide it. Not everybody knows a fool, a shaita. You can hide it. But Shloim HaMelech spoiled it. Because Shloim HaMelech wrote in Mishle, Pesi Yamin Lechol Dover, Va'arum Yavin Dover Lashura. Fools will believe everything. Wise people will understand before they believe. So when Shloim HaMelech wrote this, all the fools in the world went crazy. <laughs> he opened the lid... He brought them out of the closet and he said, look, here's a fool, here's a fool, here's a fool, here's a fool. It used to be for Shaduchim purposes, for other purposes, nobody knew who we were. But now King Solomon ruined everything. So they had an emergency summit, an international summit, and all the fools came. And it was a three-day retreat with good food and keynote speeches, and all the fools gave speeches. Vos Tutman, how do we get rid of this thing that the stereotype and the stigma, this definition that Shleim HaMelech gave that a fool believes everything, and everybody now knows who I am because I believe everything. And after three days of deliberating, they decided they need another seven days and seven nights. And after seven days and seven nights of endless deliberations and lectures and meditations, and sessions, and retreats, etc., they came to the conclusion. How are they going to deal with this? And the answer is, they're never going to believe anything again. (laughs) They're never going to believe anything again. And that's what they do. That's what they do. So nobody should be able to identify them as fools. Yeah. So there's healthy skepticism, and there's what's called unhealthy skepticism. There's skepticism that comes from a search for truth, and there's skepticism that comes from fear of truth. Very opposite skepticism. It's not the same as sinning? It could be. There is a skepticism that comes because I'm looking for truth. There's a skepticism that comes because I'm afraid of truth. It's also skepticism. They look the same. But it's a completely different skepticism. The skepticism that comes because I'm looking for truth is a good skepticism. The skepticism that comes because I'm afraid of truth is a big trap. Because here the skepticism becomes worshipped. You understand the skepticism becomes a god. Now I'm invested in not believing anything. Because chas v'shalem, if I believe, I'm a fool. And that's the greatest form of foolishness. The greatest form of foolishness, just like there's a foolishness where a person surrenders themselves to a cult or to stupidity or to rubbish. Equal foolishnesses when a person is not ready to surrender themselves to a truth. It's an equal foolishness. When a person is not ready to open themselves up to a real truth, to be able to surrender to it, to be able to believe it, to be able to embrace it. It's the equal, 
equal, e- equal foolishness. Those are the two, f- the two sides of the Pesi. <laughs> Pesi Yamin Lechol Dover, and then the Pesi Enoi Maimin Lechol Dover. Stoicha Pesi. But I wissen was, yeah? Or was nicht? How do they know how to filter it properly? Okay. For this, he can't be a passy. For this, he can't be a passy. But that's not the other side, you know. Sometimes we 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 all know people. They're called X. They call themselves X something. Yeah. Whenever somebody calls themselves X something, the challenge is: is that now your whole definition? <laughs> My definition is: I'm an X. Who who are you? I'm an X. If that's my definition, then whatever happens, I have to remain an X. Because that's what I'm invested in. Now I'm invested in my skepticism. That's where my stocks are. So I will protect it. I'll fight for it on every level because this is who I am. And if this is who I am, so then there's something at the core of everything I'm going to accept or not accept. And that is, I have to be an X. In other words, I'm completely not in an open place. And when you're not in an open place, you're completely closed up. And when you're completely closed up, what could come in? So that's what the Gemara says, clay reikon, machzik, clay mole, ene machzik. My cup of tea is full. There's no room for anything else, sorry. Either you go into my files or go find somebody else. So how, how do the kids have to deal with this uh, identity crisis that they have? Because they all have identity crisis. They don't want to identify with something that they've been preached for. And not all, but a lot. I'm dealing with one. Well, everybody's dealing with it today. Everybody's dealing with it today. And uh, it's, 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 it's one of the great challenges of, of, of many, many families and communities. And it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know that there's one sentence answer to it. But I think on a, on a, on a, huh? Because they are close to certain things. They are close. They shut themselves down. But they still kind of open to something new. And that something new is so individual. It's so hard to tailor for them. Yeah. What we often have to do in these areas is just maintain a very, very close relationship. That's the most important thing. When you maintain a close relationship, then good things happen. Because then the energy doesn't have to be invested in, in, in being X, you know. I'm not part of this family. I'm not part. Then the energy can hopefully be explored in, towards productive end, more productive ends. So whatever the situation is, I can't say whatever, but generally a very strong emotional relationship with children and students always has to be maintained, very strong. doesn't mean we're always happy with choices. It doesn't mean we always agree with choices. It doesn't mean we're not upset about certain things. But it means I'm never going to let go of you. You're always mine and I'm always yours. We're going to be forever connected in the deepest way. Because remember, so much energy people, youngsters put in I'm not going to be my father. I'm not going to be my mother. I'm going to become a person. The moment you feel that I'm, to be a person, you have to detach from your parents and your family, you're going to be making very stupid mistakes. Because your father and mother are not all evil. Your father and mother are not perfect, but they're not all bad. But when they become the symbol of bad, anything that your father and mother do becomes evil, so you have to do the exact opposite. 
And then you make very foolish mistakes. You understand? You're not in a position to make mature choices because your main thing is, I'm X. <laughs> That's it, I am. That's it. So if it's something that even smells with my mother's kugel, it smells for my mother's chicken soup, or my father's aroma, I'm, 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 I'm far away from it. If that relationship is a very, very powerful one, so they could feel embraced in that environment, there still may be quite a few complicated choices they're going to make, but there's no need and investment that whatever you say is automatically wrong. I don't have to prove myself by cutting and severing all cords from you. So I think as a prerequisite, a very strong emotional relationship with children today is maybe more important than any other time. I mean, I can't speak about other times, but I think it's extremely important today. But generally, I find that children who are close to their parents from a very young age doesn't, can't start when they're 18. <laughs> At that point, they got other friends and more interesting people to hang out with than their old men. But... Uh, this has to start very young, but when there is a strong emotional relationship throughout with boys and girls, so many, so many things could be prevented later. So many things. Anashir. But you have to stay very, very close. Extremely close. And uh, never allow anything to come in between. Sometimes there's disappointments. Sometimes you may want to go to your bedroom and cry for an hour. Sometimes you have to be quiet. Sometimes you don't have to be quiet. There's a lot of things to decide and figure out you know, chinuch is a very delicate, delicate balance between giving guidance and yet not alienating. And also, what age? You know, there's the chinuch to a four-year-old, the chinuch to a sixteen-year-old. It's not the same chinuch. The challenge today is the opposite. Many people, because they're afraid to speak to their sixteen-year-old, they're also afraid to speak to their four-year-old. Yeah. People don't know that parents are allowed to say no. <laughs> you have to say no. It's a good thing for children to hear the word no with love, not with anger. But no is as healthy as yes. <laughs> you got to go to sleep now is a good thing. It's not a curse. So that's another extreme. You have to be emotionally present. Emotionally present means in discipline too, but not with anger, not with impulsiveness. Many people don't know that discipline could be as loving as love and sometimes more loving than love because the discipline they received was always with anger or maybe not anger, but maybe from traumatized people or, or a lot of impulsiveness. So we think that all discipline is evil. Discipline is not evil. Discipline is sometimes the greatest love in the world. But it has to come from a place of connection, not from a place of, you're a sick person, get out of my life, lock yourself up in your room till you're by mitzvah. So, uh, Rabbi Yaakov, yeah. Um, no, I wasn't exactly on point, but I was going to suggest that what do you do with in a society, for example, there used to be something called Malcolm X. Define the whole Malcolm X. Malcolm X, Define yes. Define the whole worldview based on Malcolm X. Yes. So this is, yes. This is the question, what do you do about individual relationships? So the, I think the challenge today is that you see the society is encouraging a lot of the dysfunction that's reflected in individual relationships. That was just a, something that occurred to me when you were finding things. Right. So I'm, see, I have an ex-spouse. Exactly. So I'm an ex, Right. Imagine a spouse. Sometimes you have an ex. Imagine your ex defines herself or himself exclusively as an ex. Who are you? An ex. <laughs> that's really, that's, that's the identity? I'm an ex? It's part of your life, yes. And it's an important part, and it's important history. But that's it, there is. 
So sometimes a person, who am I? I'm X this, I'm X. That's really who you are? That's it? That You're not worth anything more than being an X? Your whole definition, but that's what the person feels. Without being an X, I don't have an identity. I'm just another shmata. I'm just another zombie. So therefore, every day they wake up, what's their first thought? How am I going to prove that I'm an X today? Unconsciously, every decision is guided by the fact that I have to be an X. How did you know when to come in? <clears throat> I don't mean you. I don't mean you. <laughs> so he identifies himself as X, he becomes an ex-husband. So the point, the point is that I have to know if I'm an, <laughs> an X of an X. The point is, you always tell me about your friends, right? A lot of friends, that's why I said that. I didn't mean you yourself, chas v'shalom. But a lot of people, and, 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 and one feels, they're trying just to find themselves. I want to have an identity, I want to be who am I? The only one I could be is I'm not them. I'm not, not, not. You can't live by that. I'm not like them. They're all brainwashed. I'm not really. You're not. <laughs> Your whole identity is nothing but to prove that you're not them. No, there's no, there's no self-acceptance. There's no self-compassion in a real way. So when a person goes into that state, so then <laughs> I can't believe anything. <laughs> I'm closed off to anything. Because I'm just invested in one reality. So that's a different type of skepticism. You always have to see if skepticism is coming because you want real truth or because you're partially afraid of anything that's going to shake the boat. The internet muddies the waters. Yeah. So many things on the internet that are claimed to be true. True, this is true, this is true. Right, right, right. So this is all, this is all the Nakuda of the Tzimtzum in the Talmud, right? We're talking about the Tzimtzum in the Talmud. The Tzimtzum in the Talmud means that for me to really be able to uh, be mechabal, to really be able to absorb, I have to have the courage, and it takes tremendous courage, to be able to become, to be able to go in from a state of polit to a state of mivla. From a state of, of, of being the, the projector to the state of being the recipient. And the recipient means I'm completely open. And a completely open means I have the courage to be able to suspend my eye and really, really to be able to absorb, to listen. And that's what real listening is. Real listening means I listen without the need to form an opinion. Sometimes we listen to somebody, let's say your child or your wife or your husband or a friend, and when you're listening, you're not listening. You're thinking, how am I going to respond? When is this guy going to finish already so I could tell them the truth? Yeah. I'm not listening. I'm just busy forming my attack. That's it. Why? Because I'm already in a state of, you know, I'm just, I can't listen anymore. I already heard it all. And when we do that, we stop hearing anything. We don't hear anything new. Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael means you have to listen. In order to be able to listen, I can't be present. If I'm busy forming an opinion, you're stupid, you're angry, you're egotistical, you're impossible, I can't listen to you. Listening actually means listening to the other person. But listening to the other person means I have to go out of my own space and enter into your space. Can I do that? 
If I have so much chatter in my brain or I have so much fear, I can never leave my space and listen to you. I always have to remain in my space because I'm afraid that if I leave my space, I'm going to die emotionally. So I will forever remain in my space and I can't listen to you. And when you're dealing with such a situation in yourself and you can identify it, then it's at least the beginning of the identification that I'm incapable of this. I really cannot listen. I just can't listen to anybody. I can't even listen to myself. I don't give myself the space to listen to myself. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just like robotic. I'm just protecting myself. So real listening is... every listen, All listening is a form of being macabre. To truly, truly be able to listen. And when you really be able to listen, you, you learn a lot of new things. It takes a lot of chachma to learn from every person. You, you could... You could really learn. It's potentially very dangerous if you're only absorbing and not asking. Like, you're right. Always oh, ask. So you have to ask questions. If you don't ask questions, you're, big you're right. You're right. And it becomes a cult. You're right. That's why the Balatanya is talking about a Rebbe whom you trust. And, you, and the reason you trust him is not because. It's blind also. That's also dangerous. Uh, it's da- it, it could be dangerous if you shut down your mind. Yeah. If. if as you put it in a cult, if a person shuts down their mind and is not allowed to ask any questions, You're then it could become very dangerous. But it doesn't start. The reason the Talmud shows this Rebbe wasn't from, from a lack of, 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 of critical thinking. On the contrary, right? Hashem tells about Moshev, right? But it was a process. There's a relationship has to be built. Elisha didn't just get caught into the web of Elio Anavi because uh, Elio Anavi was charismatic. He, he tested him. He saw him. Eliezer didn't become the Evid of Avram because Avram pressured him. Eliezer was a very brilliant man. A real, a real student. It's not just, I'm forced to be your student. Then you have a problem. That's not what a Talmud is. A Talmud has to choose a Rebbe. That choice... That choice is very critical. It should be very critical. It should be very critical. Real Talmidim who have the deepest relationship with their Rebbes are those who chose their Rebbes. If it was forced on on you, it's not a Rebbe. It's a different concept. It's fine. You have, you have it's forced on you, whatever it is. It's not that it's not this relationship. And then I'll never be able to be Mavatal myself, because there's always the antenna in back of me. What if he's abusing me? I mean emotionally. Right? What if he's misusing me? What if he's manipulating me? Only when I choose it can I fully trust it. And then if I don't fully trust it, I'm actually being stupid. I'm, 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 I'm paralyzing myself. It's like you're sitting at the feet. <laughs> it's like you're sitting at the feet of a Moses and you're like, I don't sit at anybody's feet. Sorry. I don't do that. Well, you're a fool. <laughs> It was Hayid Chaim Potak. Have you heard of Chaim Potak? Some of you know Chaim Potak. He was one of the great novelists in America. He was a Jew in Philadelphia. I think he considered himself a conservative rabbi. Uh, I think he was a student of the seminary, the JTS. My name is Ashalev, right? The Chosen, yeah. Very famous, famous writer. He passed away, he died a few years ago. So, uh, my brother told me that he was once at a Shabbos with him in New Jersey. And um, 
So both of them spoke. So Chaim Potak spoke and he got up. And he spoke about the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Rebbe was still alive. And he said that all the years he decided never to go visit the Rebbe privately on the Yechidus. He only came to Fabrengens. Remember, he would come to Fabrengens, but he never went in privately. Why? He said, because I heard so much about this man, <laughs> I was afraid that if I have a private audience, I would not be objective anymore. He would cast his spell on me, and his charisma was so powerful, his wisdom was so powerful, I wouldn't be objective. I wanted to remain a critic from outside. So therefore, I never, all the years, I never went to visit him. I used to come hear him, and, and uh, once he came on Purim, and the Rebbe spoke a whole sikh about how to write a novel, <laughs> about how to write a book. He was there once, Purim, by a Fabrengen. He came a lot of times, but I never went into a private audience because he said, I didn't want to lose my objectivity. I wanted to remain distant so I can have a critical, critical eye. He says, because that's the most important thing, to remain distant, to remain objective. Now, it sounded very sophisticated, very classic American uh, contemporary way of thinking, right? So my brother Simon told me, he says, Came his turn. He was speaking after. So he said, Mr. Potak or Reb uh, Chaim, whatever you talk to Potak, he said, I just, have, well, I just have one question. I just, I'm interested how you would, how you would respond to this question. A different point of history, not to compare, a different chapter of history. But let's say you were from the generation of Jews who left Egypt. And Moses said, we're going to Mount Sinai. <laughs> and at Mount Sinai, God is going to reveal himself face-to-face and give the Torah, would you also say, no way I'm going to Mount Sinai because I do not want to lose my objectivity when it comes to life. (laughs) Would you be one of those, sorry, I can't do this. I don't go to Mount Sinai. I don't do, I don't, I'm not going to do this. I have to remain. No, no, that's what my brother asked him. I don't think he answered us. Fashtest? <laughs> he was a very skeptical person. He was a skeptical person. And, and we know why people are skeptical. Listen, if you grew up in an environment of manipulation, you should be skeptical, <laughs> frankly. I'm telling you, people who grew up with messages that were harmful... They will not believe anybody ever again. Why should they? I used to be a wet sponge. I took in everything. And what happened? I became an invalid. I became a cripple. So what's my solution? My sponge is off. It's closed. That's it. I close the lid. I'm done. The challenge is I'm done in everything. I shut the faucet. There's no water coming in anymore. There's no water coming in anymore. I'm not open to anything. I close the lid, there's nothing there. So just like there's closing the lid from ego, there's closing the lid from fear. The truth is, when a person gets older, you have now the ability to discriminate. You could say, this goes into the sponge, this doesn't go into the sponge. For this, the sponge is open. For this, the sponge is not open. Right? This is all, <laughs> this is all the snow. First of all, go outside to get to the snow. But if you want to get to the snow inside, so this is the, 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 the idea of the symptom of the Talmud, where I can't be in a state of, of, of 
egotistical expansion because I'm not going to absorb anything. I have to become a nekuda of bittel to really be able to absorb. And it's, it's a very deep experience. And when you see, when you see truth, if you know Moshe is taking you to Har Sinai, Vayar Ha'om, Vayonu, Vayamdu Merachek, Vayonu. I was once doing a Yom Kippur service. Vayonu is they, they trembled. I was once doing a Yom Kippur service many, many years ago in Soho. Soho, Manhattan. There were a few hundred people, extremely secular Jews, but not just uh, secular, not X, let's put it that way. Not X, you know, who are speaking by the Havsaka in Yiddish. But uh, they're speaking about the Harpikursus in Yiddish, right? You know that one, those. Not X's, X's for many generations. Maybe their grandpa. Really, really secular, but completely alienated from, from, from hundreds of people of that nature. Completely alienated, almost alienated. And I was running a Yom Kippur service. So it was a challenge. It was a very interesting challenge. To uh, you know, nothing could be taken for granted. Nish kol nidre and nish They know nothing. You know, kol nidre and went to be. The only thing they knew is you have to be quiet. They were quiet the whole time because uh, you're there. You're quiet. So it came to koyrim. Came to time to do koyrim. You know, five times koyrim. And I thought it would be very healthy for Manhattanites to do koyrim. When do young Right, Jews who are living in Soho on top of the world, prosperous, successful, uninhibited, cool, charming, good-looking, uh, creative people, entrepreneurs. When do they get to do kaidim? Yeah, but how am I going to sell this ritual of kaidim to uh, <laughs> without that and then thinking that I'm a Muslim? And next is Allah Akbar. You know, that's all they know about. What do they know about kaidim? So I said, listen, I stood up. <laughs> I said, Jews never bow down to anybody. And we're crazy about it. I'm Kshayorif. We're stubborn. We don't bow down. You have a Haman. He's the prime minister of the empire. All he wants is you to bow down to him. The Jew won't bow down. Mordechai won't bow down. And he knows that Haman wants to kill him for it. He will not bow down. Why? We don't bow down to anybody. And we don't bow down to anything. Nothing and nobody. We don't bow down. What's bowing? Bowing means you lose your head. You lose your heart. You surrender. You prostrate yourself. Right? You give up yourself. We don't do that to anybody and anything. Ever. One exception. <laughs> truth. To truth we bow down. We bow down to truth. And when you don't bow down to anything else, then you could really bow down to truth. But to truth, or what we call God, we bow down to. Somebody who bows down to everything, is just uh, spineless. You don't got a spine, you bow down. Jews knew you don't bow down to anybody or anything. But when you see truth, over there you bow down. And you bow down completely. And then when you bow down to truth, then we know that the reason you don't bow down other times is not because you're a narcissist and an egotistical, self-centered person but it's actually coming from a place of strength. And that's why you'll never find Jews on the floor. <laughs> Maybe doing a push-up, and it's also not a Jewish thing so much, unfortunately. 
So I said, but Yom Kippur, Jews bow down. And we bow down five times. So I said, I'm not telling you what to do, but whoever has courage, whoever has courage, now we're going to bow down, bow down completely, and you're bowing down for truth. So I said, whoever wants to join me, the Chazan is going to do Kairam, I'm going to bow down, and if you want to join me, your pleasure. I know it's not what you used to, but if you have courage, bow down with me for truth. Okay, so I, I, I turned around. Truthfully, I didn't think anybody will uh, buy my, uh, my eloquent Russia, but I thought it's a good try. And I went down Kairam, I was facing Mizrach. So how long you down for a few seconds? I bow down. I stood up. I take a look. The whole place is on the floor. And they didn't know you have to get up. Nobody told I didn't tell them you gotta get up. The Ezra's Anoshim, the Ezra's Noshim. Everybody was flat on the floor. I'm telling you, it was I couldn't take a picture because of our Minigonyim Kipper. But uh, it was a surreal scene. It was, and you know what I thought to myself? It's good for them. I don't know when the next time they're going to bow down to God. Let them stay for a while. And they stayed. (laughs) Yeah, I left. I came to Muncie. But you know what? It was probably, people told me afterwards, it was one of their most spiritual experiences in life. They never did such a thing. We're going to bow down to truth. We're going to bow down to God. Completely down. And they were mamish down. It was very moving for them. Some of them, they just stayed there. They loved it. Because it's like, it's, it, it was an emotional thing of surrender. You could just let go. Awakens inner, inner connections. It awakened an inner connection. And it also awakens, what happens if you could surrender to truth, knowing that it's truth, you won't be hurt by it. What happens if you know that somebody's going to really love you, and if you open up, you're not going to get hurt? Then you have a better feeling than that. We don't open up because I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. This one stabbed me, that one stabbed me, I'm not going to be stabbed again. So I walk around life like this. <laughs> and even if I go like this, there's a knife in the bosom. I don't mean a physical life, but an emotional knife. But what happens if you could really, really, really trust you have that inner strength to trust. Then you could surrender. No, so there's something better than that. There's something more sweet for an infant than trusting its mother and just surrendering in the mother's bosom and, and just being relaxed. So just because we're older, we don't need that. We all need that. We all need that. We just can't do it. We can't afford it. I don't want to be stabbed again. So we walk around with bulletproof, bulletproof vests. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's right. Chops, 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 chops. You're not going to stab me again. You don't speak like this, but that's what's happening subconsciously. Nobody's going to stab me again. And if you could, if you could chop somebody, and even when we want this, even when we want to express some gratitude in this, it's not going to be in a. I'm not going to surrender too much. is the ultimate and even that's already too much to ask. Right. But re- and the reason is, I, I, I'm afraid. I'm pushed frightened. So I have no other choice. I have to stay in a cage. That's it. I lock the cage. You want to speak to me? Come to the cage. <laughs> it's like solitary confinement. People are in solitary confinement. There's a people, you want to come speak to me? You speak through a cage. You want to shake my hand? It's through a cage. 
Physically, we're maybe not in the cage, but emotionally, I'm in a cage, you're in a cage. We shake hands, but it's through a cage. Especially when they give you the hand, you know, only the edge of the fingers, you know those handshakes? It's like, God forbid, to give a... Yeah. What, 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 but what if, what if a person could... What if a person... Oh. Uh. I see the oilam the oilam ledek What if a person could experience that relationship, can experience that love? Who doesn't need it? Who doesn't want it? So when you have a moment of koyrim, it's very, very special. They could just bow down and nobody's going to step on their heads. They trusted it. And it was a very deep experience for them. Can I completely surrender? Can I completely bow down? Somebody once wrote me an email. They, they, they listen a lot to the classes. So, uh, so somebody wrote me. <laughs> we were learning a class. It was by Yosef, Yehuda, Torah, Parshas, Vayigash. Yosef is Metzius, Yehuda is Bittel. So he said, when you speak about Bittel, I say two words. I'm going to quote, hell no. I will not be Mavatal myself. <laughs> That's what I tell myself. I will not to anybody and anything. It's it, it's a painful world. It's a painful world. And that's what Chaim Patek was saying. There's so many gurus out there. There's so many manipulators. There's so many Kabbalists. Right? There's so many whatever. Miracle cures. Just give me your money. Or maybe I don't even need your money, but just give me your trust. I need your, I I need the people. <laughs> I need to feel that I have the people, and I'll, I'll bring you to God. Chaim Pater says, "I'm going to be the person on the side who's going to be able to say charlatan, charlatan, freak, shark, lowlife, ganav, goslin, ritzayach, terrorist. You need somebody on the side." I understand. Chaim Pater says, "I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get lost." Somebody has to remain intact. Not pure, intact. Not pure. <laughs> that person is not pure. <laughs> what does the other what did, what did he not realize? That itself is a trap. That itself is another trap. The trap of objectivity. So he missed the truth. Exactly. You could stand at House Sinai. <laughs> no, not me. That becomes a trap. It's, it's a subtle trap. It's the trap of science today. The fools believe everything. So what am I going to do? I'm going to believe nothing. You know why? Because I'm the same fool. I'm the same fool. This is important in the Kudus. But how does the person know? Let's say... You could speak. You could speak about everything here. <laughs> you could speak about the Rebbe. Okay. He needs to make this conclusion. You're right. And he does. And it's and and that's the healthy dose of skepticism. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. Yeah. It's a very, very deep nakuda, and and you can't tell somebody to do it. Because if you're telling somebody to do it, then it's forced. I can't tell you, choose. I can't tell you, choose this. If I'm telling it to you, it's not yours. It's, it's a deep nekudah that a person has to be able to be makir. 
And when they're mocked, I have to. I can't shut my mind and shut my heart and shut my soul. On the contrary, my mind and heart and soul have to say, "This is it." Not because I'm not thinking, because I thought through everything. And the truth is, some people believe, as people often tell me, that there's no such a thing in, in the world. In other words, they have been hurt so badly, they don't even, they're just cynical about everything forever, and that's it. Because we had an experience where we thought... Exactly! For 20 years they thought, then the guy destroyed his marriage. <laughs> right? As a younger man told me, this guy that everybody believes in, Taman, told him to marry the wrong girl. He said, I don't want to. He said, it's going to work out. I'm just giving you an example. Now he's miserable. I'm not even judging. I'm not judging. I don't know who's right, who's wrong. He said, now, now, you want me to go, now you want me to go there? Real Talmidim don't choose their Rebbes because they were forced. <laughs> Because they shut down everything, they said, "Okay, whatever." Then, 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 then you're right. You could go lahavdil. Any imam could become your new god. <laughs> Every galach becomes your new. I'm chacham v'noven. I'm kshayyirif. But when you're real chacham v'noven, and you see something, and you see MS, and now you close yourself off, now it's the biggest tipshus in the world. Sometimes it's a risk. He knows that it's a risk. It's a risk. Listen, every, to be a macabre is a risk. But the question is what you're risking for. <laughs> you know what I mean? In order, to, in order to choose, you have to be yourself. You have to have yeah. an eye. When do you break it away and give it up? What's that problem? It's a good question. To choose, you have to have an eye. When do you give up that eye? Right? When you trust enough. That's a good question. That's a good question. But I don't know that I have an answer to that question. I think you're the only one who could know that. I don't think, I, I cannot tell somebody that. If I'm telling it to them, then it's me, it's not them. That's the sound that you make a choice. When the surrender is not coming from weakness but from strength, you're present in the surrender. First taste. When your bittal is coming, not because you were forced, but because you discover the emes, then you are in the bittal. <laughs> you are there. <laughs> it's your greatest joy. It's your greatest. It's your greatest simcha. You're there in the bittal. You weren't killed. <laughs> you're there. In in a good way, you're there. Huh? You came to Ofgilet. You have Chisamesim. You you came to life. People don't choose God also because of this. No. Same thing. If all I know about God is negative and harshness, so why should I go there? So therefore I become an X. That's what an X is. (laughs) If you're limiting yourself, then it's a problem. You're right. We're not talking about limiting yourself. We're talking about unlimiting yourself. You have to trust yourself. <laughs> you have to tr- for this. You have to trust yourself. We go back to the Maimer Vayikachamon. If you think you're a shmata, nothing is going to work. You can't get the real bittel without the. Fir- without- if you don't trust yourself, you're right. If I think I don't trust myself, then I'm just uh, I'm, I'm like a, a kite. <laughs> if you do trust, then you don't trust to give it up. If you really trust yourself, you could trust yourself to give it up. (laughs) 
a real Talmud has to have the best confidence. <laughs> the real Talmud. If you take it, don't trust yourself to give it up because you're going to get lost in a cult. Then you're right. You have to be very careful. Today, if you get drunk, you're not going to get up. So you have to keep some. How do you keep, you, do you keep that balance? Shminis <laughs> Rabbi Engel says you have to come 40 days straight and then you'll figure it out. And you know, trust builds on itself. When you're surrounded around people or a person that you trust, it, it, it builds on itself. It, it, there's an expression in the Ralbag, Truth points to itself from every angle. You understand? If it's true from one angle and not from another angle, it's not true. Truth means I could come from here, I can come from there, I can come from there, I come from here. Wherever I look from, it's going to be Emes, you know, because it's Emes. So if you take a rabbi, you limit yourself to one aspect. Depends, sure depends what type of rabbi. The definition of Hashem, a real rabbi means an Eved Hashem. Rebbe is not his own Metzius. If a rabbi becomes his own Metzius, then stay far away. He could be a nice CEO. It's not a Rebbe. It's a fine. Nothing wrong with being a CEO. The concept of a real Rebbe is an Eved Hashem. And an Eved Hashem means a channel to infinity. Because Hashem means you're not limiting yourself. That's the definition of Hashem. The only definition of Hashem is that He has no definition. If Hashem has a definition, we have a name for it. You know the name for it? When Hashem has a definition. It's called Avoy Dezorah. Loisasa Pesel. What is a pesel? Pesel is definition. What's pesel? Psal lecha. It's carved out. In other words, God has a definition. The moment God has a shape, a limit, a definition, a shape, a color, a description. That's pesel. It's in Aseris Adibris. Not a pesel, not a tmuna. The word pesel and tmuna. What's a tmuna? A picture. What's wrong if you make a picture of God? It's three-dimensional. Or even four-dimensional. What's the problem? Make a picture of Hashem. We could, what's wrong with making a picture? Your kid comes home, three years old, he made a picture of Tati. You look at it. Yeah. It looks like you, like a kangaroo looks like you. You look at it, it says, so beautiful. And you put it on your refrigerator. It's a garbage. But your three-year-old made it. What do you care? So what does Hashem care if I make a picture of him? Big deal. I made a picture of Hashem. It's a stupid picture. It's a false picture. So what? Put it on the refrigerator. The answer is because turning God into a picture and a definition is the worst thing for a relationship with God. It's not God. It's your own God. So a relationship with a real Rebbe is somebody who's an Eved Hashem, not somebody who has his own ego. Now we all have our own egos. That's a fine thing. But I don't want to have a relationship with you because of your ego. I can already have a relationship with my ego. We'll have to surrender to your ego. You know what I mean? But this is not about limiting yourself. It's about unlimiting yourself. On the contrary, if I detach, I limit myself. I remain stuck in my little, in my, in my little orbit. What if there is truth? What if there is truth? It's a very delicate thing. This is a delicate thing. That's right. Right. That was not against you. That was a, a HOV lane 
a clear path to to get to where you want to get. Now you're not stopping there. Yeah, real a real Rebbe is uh, Eved Hashem. So given a chasen, a dejlob and a chasen, I'll finish with this. Rebbe Yitzchak of Badichev had an enikul, his name was Rebbe Liezer. Balatanya had a granddaughter, her name was Sara, the daughter of the Mittler Rebbe. They got married, Sivin Tovkov Samach, Sivin Tovkov Samach Zayin, 1807. Um, so uh, there was a very interesting chasen, because you had the Badichev there, the Kedusha Slevi and the Balatanya, and many other tzaddikim came, and many of their talmidim came. Hundreds of people, or maybe thousands of people, I don't know exactly. And it was a whole week of celebration, like a whole Thursday till Monday or whatever. It was a, it was a very dehoibene moment. And the Badichever was, if you could say this, at his best, in his fullest pashtas. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, the, the, he was a Kaddish alien. In the middle of, at the end of one of the Maimarim, the Balatanya said that... Uh, that Malach, what Malach Michal is Lamaila, the Badichever here is here is Lamata. Anyway, at the end, they were he was leaving, the Baltanya was leaving. So he was in the coach, and he had a, a Balagola, a man who would tell like what you would his coachman who used to take him for many years. And the Alti Rebbe loved him the He loved him, they loved each other, Avas Nefesh, and he was so proud of him. Like he really cherished him. He was much younger than him, but he he felt uh, he felt very special about him. So he turns to the Balagola on the way home, and he says, Nu, What do you say about my machutin? Like he just, you know, like somebody will say, what do you say about my child? What do you say? Like he wanted, he wanted to quell with, with, uh, with the, with the, it's a kabadichev. He says, What do you say about my machutin? The Balagola said, I am machutin is pile ployim. <laughs> your bala, your bechutin is wonders of wonders, but a rebbe like you, there's no. I am bechutin is pile ployim, but rebbe v'yaich is nishta. Why did he feel that way? Okay, so under shmuz, fine. <laughs> This is a Maisa, they say. I don't know if it's a Maisa. I don't know how we know it. We probably know it from somebody who was there. Well, today we wouldn't repeat it, and the Balagala probably didn't repeat it because he was a Balagala. He said it simply. Yeah, Jacobson said when, um, when the Atarelli was first becoming ready, his Rebison said to him that you, they're not coming for your ego, they're not coming for yeah. you. They're coming for you. You yeah. know over what, you, what you've learned from you. Yeah. I heard that story, I think, Purim, uh, Purim or, I heard that from the Rebbe. He said over the story. That the Balatanya was sitting by his window and he saw Chassidim coming. It was the early years. And he told his wife, Vos What do they want from me? And he was, so to speak, like about to give it up. He didn't want to let them in. And his wife saw. And she was smart. So she said, Do you think they're coming to you to hear what you have to say? They don't want to hear what you have to say. They want to hear what you heard from your Rebbe. But she said, the Alter said, Was villains there for me? Why are they coming to me? She said, You think they're coming to you to hear what you have to say? They want to hear what you heard from your Rebbe. He said, If that's the case, I'll say and say and say. And he opened the door and he said, Chsidis for them. 
So that's Peshat, that a woman, a smart woman, knows how to save a moment. It was a moment. It's like, what do they want from me? What, I, I became this whole thing here? No way. Because the al was Pachlis HaBittl Mamash. You could see from the Maimarim his Bittl. You could see from the Maimarim what type of person he was. You could get a taste. You get a taste from the Maimarim. You get a taste what type of person he was. A little bit of a taste. I mean, not some. We we don't have our saga, but a little bit. So you can understand the worst thing it was for him was they're coming to me. So his wife said, "They're not coming to you. They want to hear from you, Rebbe. The only way is through you." So the Rebbe, the Lubavitch Rebbe, finished the story, and he said this. He said. He was at a Fabreng and he was sitting. He said, it's a funny thing that thousands of people are coming and spending a night to hear what somebody has to say. It seems not menschlich to schlep all these people out just to hear. This is the Rebbe saying in his 80s. So he told this story. <laughs> and then he said, listen to this. He said, the Alter Rebbe said this because he was humble. <laughs> of course they wanted to hear what he has to say. <laughs> and his wife knew it. But he was humble. So when she said they just want to hear what the Magad has to say, it was good enough. He said, by him there was taka what to hear. He said, in this case, when you're coming here, it's taka not humility. The only reason I'm speaking is because I was zoicha to hear things from my father-in-law and from my father and from Chesidim Arishayim and that's what I'm giving over. So he said, the Alter Rebbe taka, it was humility, he had what to say. In this case, he said, it's not enough, it's not humility, it's Pasha the Metzias, that the only reason people are coming, yeah, and I'm sitting is, is to hear what I heard from my father-in-law on this. The Rebbe was saying that it seems like, it's not, he said it's, it's not menschlich, that he's sitting and speaking, and thousands of people have to spend their night coming, I mean, to his Fabrengen. Right? So he, he started to say, he said, He said, it's a strange thing. He said, A person sits, maybe you were there, and thousands of people come and listen to him. It was in 770, I think, Purim or Nisantan. I was a kid. So he said, it's a strange thing. Why take away people? They could sleep, they could learn, they could daven, they could do their thing. Like it seems, he says, he says it seems gaiva, very arrogant. That's what the Rebbe said about himself. So he said he wants to tell a story, and he told the story of the Alter Rebbe, what his wife said, that it's not come, they're not coming for you, they're coming to hear what you... He says, by the Alter Rebbe, the real thing is, he did have what to say. He was just another dick, he was humble, so, so, he, 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 so he said, it's not me, that's only for the Magad. He says, in this case, it's not humility. <laughs> he says, in this case, it's the Metzius, not humility, that... <laughs> That the only reason that what justifies it is that I'm sharing what I heard from my father-in-law. And what I heard from my father, what I heard from Chesidim Arishayim. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.